Welcome. Hi, I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You are listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Diana Rogers about a range of topics related to nutrition, the health of children and their nutrition, the health of the planet, eating meat, and everything in between. So, Diana Rogers is, of course, the brains behind Sustainable Dish, which is a bunch of resources in and around nutrition, health, and importantly, her work advocating for a meat-inclusive diet. So we discuss how Diana got into the field of nutrition and then move on to talk about the importance of diet for children and the disconnect between what constitutes a nourishing diet versus commonly eaten and available foods. We also talk about navigating the line between educating people about what is healthy and the notion that this advice might then be taken on as uh, questioning different parenting styles or parenting approaches. We discuss the misconceptions people have around eating meat and about the health of the environment and also, of course, us. And we also discuss the recent COP27 meeting, which is all about climate change and the politics behind such meetings that people might not even be aware of. So this is a really broad but really interesting conversation and I think you're going to get a lot from it. Those of you unfamiliar with Diana, she's a registered dietitian and a real food nutritionist and sustainability advocate who lives near Boston in Massachusetts. She's an author of three books, runs a clinical nutrition practice, hosts the Sustainable Dish podcast and has served as an advisory board of numerous nutrition and agricultural organisations, including Whole30, Animal Welfare Approved, and the Savory Institute. Diana speaks internationally about the intersection of optimal human nutrition and regenerative agriculture. Diana is co-author of Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat, and the director, producer of the companion film Sacred Cow. Her new initiative, the Global Food Justice Alliance, which we talk about in this conversation today, advocates for a nutritious, sustainable and equitable worldwide food system. And I've included a link in the show notes where you can find Diana, which also includes links to her books and her courses. Just a reminder though, the best way to support Wikipedia is to hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst the literally thousands of other podcasts so more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show. All right, team, please enjoy this conversation that I have with Diana Rogers, Sustainable Dish. A lot, a lot of sacred cows up there, is that what I'm seeing? Uh, there's a lot of sacred cow and a That's lot right. of paleo lunches and breakfasts on the go. Oh, yeah, I have that one too. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Dinah, um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today. And it feels like every time I'm looking at your social media or I'm tuning into your podcast, you are either just returning from or just about to head to 
another country to in your role of sort of advocating for well ultimately good nutrition but obviously you know red meat um could you have imagined that if you think about it 10 years ago no, definitely not. It's so funny. And I was actually, I remember I was having this podcast with Frederick Lois, um yes. a few months ago, and we were talking about how 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we wouldn't even be having this conversation at all. Yeah. Um, you know what? Can you hold on one second? Because yeah. I'm going to turn the heat off. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. I can hear it in my, uh, it's very cold here today. Hold on. Okay. Okay. I'm back. <laughs> yeah. Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So talking to Frederick, it wasn't a thing 10, 15 years ago. I mean, just having to defend the nutritional value of meat and uh, talk about things uh, in in the term in the context of nutrient density instead of feeling like not eating meat is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy. Yeah, I'm I'm glad. I'm honored to be um, you know one of the few people that can really address all the aspects. I think there's the reason why there's not more people pushing back against the anti-meat narrative is just because there's so much to know. Yeah. And so my background not only in nutrition but also um you know in as you know growing um food. Yeah. uh has really allowed me to have a unique um, angle on this whole thing. Oh, completely. And one of the things that we were talking about last night at dinner was that when I talk to clients about what they eat, like a lot of people who who I speak to who kind of live on farms, they're like, oh, we just are boring meat and three veg, you know? Like there's something inherently wrong with the type of diet that a lot of us in here in New Zealand at least grew up with, that it should be, I don't know, bells and whistles or something else fancy or I'm not sure. I feel like just what people view of as good food has actually really changed over the last, over that sort of time period too. Yeah, but ironically, that's probably very close to what I eat. Yeah, yeah <laughs> totally. What you eat, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Dinah, I understand that you didn't necessarily go into nutrition from the get-go with regards to your um, academic uh, sort of qualifications. Can you give us a, a brief background on, on how you sort of came to it? Yes. Um, well, I've always been interested in nutrition. Uh, I just, um, you know, didn't formally study it. I, I don't think I quite had the academic uh, interest in it when I was in my undergrad program. So I, I was actually an art major, um, graduated with a degree in art education and art history, um, and then ended up working um, uh, for a little bit as a teacher um, and then got into marketing and quickly went to food marketing because I've always been interested in food, primarily because I've always been starving. I've always been so hungry all the time. Uh, and I didn't realize until I was 26 that I was an undiagnosed celiac, which I'm pretty sure I was celiac from the very beginning. Um, I had a lot of malabsorption issues. I had reading issues, which is why I gravitated towards art instead of um, more challenging uh, uh, academically challenging, uh, courses. Uh, but nutrition has always been something that I've, I've felt like I didn't have the key to unlock how to make myself feel okay through my diet. Um, and so I worked for many years for Whole Foods Market, which is a big natural food store here in the U S. Um, and then, um, 
when I had my second child, it was just too crazy to be married to a farmer who was working every single hour there was sunlight. Um, and for me to have this corporate job, which required a lot of nights and weekends and events and things like that. And so, um, I started working on the farm and um, running our CSA program. You guys don't have those very much in New Zealand. Um, I wish you did more because I was trying to tell the farmers when I was there last summer um, what a CSA is and why you need to do them. Uh, So basically it's a subscription to a farm and you pay up front and then each week you get your membership do your membership uh, bounty in either vegetables or if it's a meat CSA, you might get one box of meat, um, you know, at a certain point, something like that. Uh, so we had a 500 member vegetable CSA, but we also had eggs and we partnered with a local bakery. So we had bread, we had um, cool mushrooms from a mushroom person up the street. We ran a seafood uh, CSA, which is really great for fishermen here in New England. Um, you know, the fishing industry is there, there's a lot of people out of work. Uh, and this fish CSA is really cool because you, you guarantee I'm going to pay you for, you know, I'll take a one pound a week or half a pound a week or two pounds a week. Whatever you catch, I will buy. Oh, amazing. And so you have to be open-minded to what you're gonna what they're gonna catch. But it's so much more sustainable both for the fishermen um and for, you know, there's just less waste because they know that you're gonna eat, you know, you you just have to be a little more adventurous in the kitchen and open-minded. Um Anyhow, so I think, um, you know, it's a great way also for farmers to make more money because they're cutting out the middleman and you're just paying the farmer directly. Yeah. So um, anyhow, so I was running the store and our CSA program and we had a kitchen and we were making, we were rendering lard and we happened to also be a raw milk co-op pickup here. Um, And I was like, why are all these people drinking this raw milk, like we were hosting it, but I didn't truly understand it. And, um, you know, they're eating all this butter, they're buying like huge blocks of butter. And, you know, they're just crazy about this, this milk and this butter. And, um, you know, at the time, I was still kind of I was gluten free, but I was still kind of like, eating low fat and, you know, lots of whole grains and things like that. Um, and so I started getting more interested in um, this kind of alternative hippie nutrition movement and, um, started learning more about the work of Weston A. Price, um, and ended up, uh, deciding to do the training through Nutritional Therapy Association, um, which was a great background in whole foods nutrition. I learned about bone broth and how to make sauerkraut and all this wonderful stuff that was like completely blowing my mind. I felt so much better eating this way. Um, and then I decided to do the RD, um, credential, which took me not joking, like seven years to do, um, because I was doing it part-time while I was working and raising kids and, um, trying to pay for it myself. And, uh, and you know, I, I hadn't taken a lot of science undergrad, so I had to, you know, start from scratch with like bio 101. Um, and, and then at the end you have to do this, um, you know, unpaid internship. It was a lot of work, but I'm really glad I did it because it allows me to uh, work more closely with doctors in my clinical practice. Um, I can take health insurance because I have this credential and it just allows me to 
um, have a little more credibility in the space. And it also opened my mind, you know, when I was working in a hospital, I really did get to see a lot of what the real world looks like as far as, you know, the fallout of poor nutrition. Um, when you're, when you're in the real food nutrition space, you tend to get a lot of people coming to you that already kind of know about you or are familiar already with eating kind of a more healthy type diet. So you're kind of self-selecting for an already kind of enlightened crowd. Um, and now that I have this background and, you know, really have a good understanding of where we are in the world with the impact that ultra processed food has on health, it, um, has really made me a much, uh, more compassionate and I think ethical dietitian. Yeah, completely. And when you were studying NTA and then of course went into the diet, the dietetics, was there anything actually in NTA that you, after doing your dietetics degree, you were like, ah, oh, a lot of these practitioners are being told this thing and it's actually not Correct. I, I don't know. Like often we think, because I think about my own sort of science background with nutrition, and I'm like, I can't believe they taught us this when it's obviously this other thing. But I wonder if the same thing applies the other way around. Uh, a little bit. I mean, there, there, there definitely wasn't the um, citations that um, I am very careful to always include when I make a statement. Um, so there wasn't a lot of that. There was a lot of like, we should do this because the body likes it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. yeah, yeah. Uh so it, it but it wasn't designed for a super scientific um person. So um I think it, overall the people coming out of that program have a really good sense of the right way to eat. And I I entered the program very confused. Uh I was reading all of these books on nutrition. I would read uh, I re I remember I read this book called The Fat Flush Plan, and it was all about how you had to drink like tons of cranberry juice and eat spaghetti yeah, yeah. squash all day long, right? And then I would drink, <laughs> read a book on juicing, and I and I thought raw juicing was the way to go. And it, the thing is, is these books are very convincing because they're written by people who are trying to sell you something. Yes. And if you don't have a good foundation and sense of not sense of self, but like sense of uh you know, what's right and what's wrong, it's going to throw you off. Um, and so NTA, I mean, I left that program firmly believing that eating a real foods ancestral type diet is the right way to go. Yeah. Um, and then I just took that and, and kept going deeper and deeper. Yeah. Nice. And were you surprised by what you learned in the dietetics course in, along the way? Or did you sort of go in with a sense of, I need to do this because I need to do it for what I'm about to do next? Yeah. It wasn't so much about learning anything. I didn't really go into it expecting to learn anything. Although there were um, things I learned a lot that, you know, were surprising, like, it's good to know biochemistry and, and like those hard sciences that um, you really can't get unless you, you know, do a graduate degree in nutrition. Um, my school required us, and this is not required of all RD programs uh, here in the States, but my, Simmons required um, that we take a course in how to dissect a scientific paper. And I'm so glad I did that. Um, so now I know uh, not just, oh, who funded this, but like really like look, taking a deep look at the methodology and, and all of that. And I use that a lot still today, uh, that skill. Um, and then again, I'd say just that context, uh, having worked in hospitals 
I never would have had that experience uh, through just NTA. And, you know, there's like this optimal diet that, that I try to eat on a daily basis. But then there's, there's just baby steps that some people need to go through and they can't just go to like making their own broth and homemade sauerkraut every day. Um, they can't just go from zero to a hundred and you have to meet people where they are. And there's a lot of people struggling with just basic life, you know, worrying about if their car's going to start tomorrow, worrying about yeah. so many other like huge problems that worrying about longevity and optimal health and not getting type two diabetes in 30 years is just not the top priority to a lot of people. And that doesn't make them, you know, that's, that's just reality. And before I did my rotations and, and really worked with these other communities. I, I didn't understand the privilege of worrying about longevity, if that makes sense. It's a privilege. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of people that are just trying to get by and processed food tastes good. Uh, it's cheap. And if you've had a really horrible day for $5, you can eat like a king. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that might be your biggest pleasure all day long and what you look forward to. And so I get it. Um, I get the trap of ultra processed food and I get what people are dealing with out there. Um, and our modern food environment really is set up to ensure people get really sick. Yeah. Oh, completely. And, you know, my sister's a teacher aide and she, you know, works with children in the school and she comes home and she said to me once, she's like, oh, Mickey, I just feel so sorry for the children who come to school with sandwiches and fruit because they're opening their really boring lunchbox beside these other children who have all of these packets and these colors and these delicious flavors and, and you know, and, and the children are really excited to get what they're eating and these kids are just, you know, they're just a little bit hard done by. So even that sort of attitude around what, um, not what food is supposed to be, because, I mean, I love food and I love socializing and being entertained by food, if you like, but I feel like part of, that's part of it as well, that, you know, people want to be entertained a little bit by what they eat. I mean, food is entertainment. I mean, even for me, you know, it's going out to dinner with some girlfriends is like the entertainment of yeah, the evening, yeah. right? It's the, it's the, you know, why do you have to sit around and actually chew and swallow stuff with other people as the, as the activity, but it is right. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I just have a much more complex and nuanced look on our food landscape on what food is. Um, I think because of all the background I've had, um, both struggling with, you know, malnutrition growing up, um, and, and food allergies and, I mean, I have to be very, very careful about what I eat, um, in, not just with celiac, but also with how many carbs I eat, how much protein I eat. I, I have to pay such close, close, close attention. Uh, there are certain foods that for me, I do not have an off switch for. And I if, like if I see my kids with a bag of chips or crisps, what you call them, and um, yeah, yeah. I will wrestle them to the ground and like rip it out of their hands. Uh, so there's certain foods that like are major trigger foods for me that, you know, I can't have in the house. And, and I'm just grateful that I know uh, about having celiac um, and, and so much about nutrition because I wouldn't be 
feeling this great at my age today if I didn't have all of this knowledge. Yeah. I feel that sometimes people think that once you dial in your real food nutrition approach, that you're suddenly invincible against the power of ultra processed food, you know, like, oh no, I'll never crave this or no, well, if you eat properly, you shouldn't need something sweet after dinner or something like that. So I actually feel like you saying that is probably a little bit of a relief to everyone out there that, oh, Diana also knows that she's got trigger foods. I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. There's one that I bought the other day that um, it's, I better not buy it again. It, it's, <laughs> um, it is these Marcona almonds. Uh, I don't know if you have them, these Spanish almonds and they're covered in this oil, salt, and then truffle. Oh, delicious. Flavor. Yeah. And I like had a very difficult time with those almonds <laughs> and I can't be near them again. So, you know, it, it, even something as silly as almonds can really be, um, you know, I wouldn't say binge worthy, but definitely um, ultra stimulating to totally. my brain. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Diana, your, you wrote a post it's not your birthday, so why are you eating cupcakes? Is that I, have I got the title of that right? It, it's just called "It's Not Your Birthday." It's not your birthday, and as I understand it, you got quite a lot of pushback from mm -hmm. that because there seems there's such a um, uh, like on one hand, people look to you to to get the advice of what they should be feeding their children, but actually, people don't want to hear it either. Uh, no, can you chat us through that? Yeah. So, uh, this was my daughter, um, was on a softball team and I see this more with girls sports than boys sports. Um, but my, so, uh, but certainly at boys sports, there, there's also junk food passed around, but the, with girls, there's this like cupcake brownie culture. Um, so because they're like cooking it with their moms as a bonding experience and then they're like cooking it for each other. And so that, you know, they were in middle school. Um, so maybe age, I don't remember 10 or 12. And we were playing a double header, and I'm sitting there, and it's halftime, and we've got like an hour in between the games, and out come dozens and dozens and dozens of brownies and cupcakes and all of this, and it's like 11 o'clock in the morning, like right before lunch, and this is what we're fueling the kids for the next game. And, you know, I have no problem with celebrating with food on a special occasion. But the reason I called it, it's not your birthday, is because it was no one's birthday, right? It, <laughs> yeah. it was just a regular Saturday and outcome, just so much junk. And we really normalize the consumption of this. And I think there's also this, like, moms are craving it, and so they see it as a bonding experience. And I'm like, why don't you just make soup? Like, why does it have to be cookies and cupcakes, right? Um, and, you know... Yeah, so kids are making it, and it makes it really hard, especially for, um, you know, I've worked with some um, kids who are overweight, and, you know, the coaches or or dance teachers will be giving out lollipops and cupcakes as rewards. Um, you know, food should never be a reward. And I got pushback not only from the other parents, uh, but also from other dietitians. And, you know, I think there's this real divide in the dietetics world between people who are, you know, today saying, you know, should never restrict anything and especially carbohydrates because that does drives food disordered eating, which is completely not science-based at all. Yeah. Um, and then there are those of us who are like, in today's modern food environment, 
you do have to exercise some type of restriction on certain foods and focus on the foods that are more health giving, not less health giving. Right. And especially in a sporting event, we really need to be very conscious of like what food, you know, this is supposed to be for the kids health. Um, and yeah, so it really drove me crazy. And I did, I got so much crap from that post. So I love posting it all the time, <laughs> reposting it, uh, because even today with the health at every size movement, I mean, yes. uh, I get it. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, people who are overweight are, um, you know, somehow less worthy humans in, in any way, but there are definite health risks to over-consuming ultra-processed foods, and we need to have that discussion, and we can't be canceling and censoring people for stating what is obvious fact. Yeah, it's interesting. I've heard someone talk about health at every size or or that, you know, if someone is overweight or or obese, then it's not necessarily their fault, you know, because of the societal drivers and, and the environment and, and a whole host of things that may have happened to them when they were younger, but potentially it is, and this, they don't like, I don't know how this will sound, but it is their responsibility that, you know, like it, that if you are concerned about your health and you can't necessarily just wait for someone else to do something about it. And there is actually, this is where the, um, you know, looking at your diet is really important. But I, I agree with you. I feel like health at every size is um, confusing for some people who, feel like they need they are unsure what to do about their about their um I don't know their body or their health because they're on one side they're told oh no you don't need to worry about it and and you can be really healthy but they're not necessarily doing these health promote or being taught or told what these health promoting I don't know behaviors are that would then yeah. allow them to be happy or healthy in in that body Exactly. And, you know, I have to, I, I can also just add, you know, my own personal experience to this. I, I recently went through a divorce and a couple of family deaths that were very traumatic. And I moved out of my house in the middle of COVID and right when I was launching the film and the book and uh, my weight at first plummeted by like 20 pounds in two months. Um, and, but then went way the other way. And I know that it's, um, it was, you know, due to cortisol and it, it was uncomfortable, especially, you know, going on the Joe Rogan podcast, I got a lot of feedback about my body, which I did not appreciate. And so I, I get the whole, like being uncomfortable, uh, um, with people kind of saying things, uh, I, and I don't have never like fat shamed people. And I'm also very careful. Like even when, you know, people are saying, well, I don't want to take advice from that person because look at them or something like that. I, I don't judge people for how they look, but at the same time, I wasn't saying like, wow, look at me. I I'm the picture of health. Like I, I was going through trauma. Um, and I'm just now sort of like digging out of it. So I, I get that there are things that, that can make it, there are emotional triggers and there are other reasons why people um, might carry more body fat, but it still doesn't, it, it's still not a marker of amazing health to be, um, you know, in a larger body. Um, and I think we all have an obligation, especially if we can walk and we're, we're, you know, generally healthy people, like why would you on purpose 
you know, not try to do something that would um, make you feel even better. Yeah. And I, and it's, and that moderate, everything in moderation is really difficult in that food environment that just drives people to overeat from hyperpalatable food. And I think that's mm-hmm. a message that that's the, a bit of a disconnect for me as well. And, oh no, you, you know, you shouldn't restrict anything. Well, actually... That's not necessarily yeah. ideal. If I had unlimited access to those almonds, <laughs> forget it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, Diana, in uh, the States at least, as I understand it, I think that in, in your school system, you know, you get school lunches. And like we don't have that here in New Zealand. It's not something that's set up. But is there like meatless Mondays and vegan Fridays? Is this some a feature of of sort of what's happening in schools nowadays? Yeah, so um, the school lunch program was started because um, they were trying to recruit for the Army, and they realized that they had a big, huge malnutrition issue going on, and it was a way to deliver nutrition to kids. That's how it all started. And so the schools built kitchens, but now largely these schools don't even have kitchens, and they're just ordering their food from a commissary, and it kind of comes in, you know, all they have to do is heat it up in these bags or whatever. Um the New York City School District, which is the largest one in the United States, was meatless Mondays for a few years and, you know, uh, bragging about it. And then uh, within the last year has instituted vegan Fridays. And I've been very, very critical of this. Um, there are, are other school systems that have done similar things. Um, not all of them. Uh, school lunch is sort of notoriously not the healthiest food in the world, especially when you look at like, what do they serve in France or Italy? You know, in the U S it is like a breaded chicken cutlet, um, with maybe some fries or mashed potatoes. And then maybe the vegetables are, well, probably, but the potatoes, but maybe peas and carrots or something really unappetizing out of a can. Like it's just not amazing food. Um, and usually there's pizza as the other option all the time. Uh, But we've never had any evidence showing that pulling meat away from children will actually result in healthier kids. And um, the Meatless Mondays propaganda that they're allowed to put in the schools sends the message to kids that meat is bad. Meat is bad for your health, it's bad for the environment, and it's wrong to eat it. And that type of messaging from such a young age, every single day in the cafeteria at school, uh, really is harmful to children because if you think, um, you know, the typical urban child in the United States, the types of foods that they prefer tend to be like chicken nuggets, burgers, um, sandwiches, uh, macaroni and cheese. You know, it's not like if you tell them meat is bad, they're going to go get a salad bowl with quinoa and kale. And, and, you know, I mean, that's not what kids eat. That's not accessible to them. Um, It's not familiar to them. And it's also not what's being served during these vegan Fridays and meatless Mondays. And so it, it sends, you know, the, the burger patty in that hamburger is probably the healthiest thing, even though it's coming from the industrial food system, it's still a better choice. And, and that's where this context and nuance comes in. And that's where I kind of butt heads sometimes with other dietitians um, or people in, in, in the meat world, because even that typical meat coming um, to the school lunch, that's maybe not the highest quality in the world um, compared to, you know, what other people can access 
is still going to deliver iron and protein and, uh, you know, important nutrients that are critical to brain health. And if that's the best that they can do, that's the best they can do. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what kind of pushback do you get from the, uh, from your colleagues in your work as, as, you know, advocating for meat? Well, it's funny, actually, the most, the most pushback I get is actually from the grass-fed beef farmers, um, believe it or not, because my position as a health practitioner is that, um, I need to number one, make sure that humans are nourished, right? Uh, So no doctor would ever say only eat organic vegetables or don't eat vegetables. Um, and, And the same thing with meat. Red meat is is healthier than chicken. It's also, I would argue, even when it's finished on a feedlot, is uh, more ethical to eat because you know one large cow can provide so much more. Think about how many chickens you would have to kill, and those the way we raise chickens are is really horrific compared to um, some of the other. You know, the, 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 these cattle, even if they're finished on a feedlot, they still spend most of the time outdoors, and they still have that iron and B twelve. And so just because it came from a large operation, it doesn't mean it's less healthy necessarily, or or certainly not toxic. And um, a lot of the grass-fed beef farmers will say, you know, less meat, better meat, or don't eat, don't eat that meat, only eat my meat. I understand where they're coming from, but it's, it's wrong to um, put down the rest of the cattle industry just to prop yourself up. I have been canceled from conferences. I was supposed to speak actually um, in Oxford uh, in January, but I was told that unless I was going to only talk about the health benefits of grass-fed beef, I couldn't go. Wow. And um, I I can't imagine them saying that to a doctor. You know, my my case is that all meat is healthy. It can be raised in better or worse ways. Um, And the goal should be for all of agriculture to improve. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think it can be quite elitist um, to force people who don't have a voice or a choice to not have access to something that is culturally appropriate and can feed their family the nutrients that they need. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I totally agree with you. And, and when I sometimes put stuff on social media around stuff like that, you, you get, you, I get a bit of pushback from people who don't like the message that, uh, unless you're eating organic or free range, then you shouldn't be eating it at all. And I'm like, well, if it's a choice between this white bread and these eggs, then I want, I would always say eat those caged eggs actually, as opposed to that white bread, because there's a whole lot more nutrition in that. But that's just a really uncomfortable place for people to sort of sit in and actually consider, you know, because then suddenly if you talk like that, then people think, oh, well, you can't be a very nice person if you, you know, are going to advocate for the slaughtering of, you know, what you were saying, like um, terrible practices in the agricultural industry. Yeah, which, yeah. It doesn't mean I endorse animal torture. It just means no. that I want healthy people and yeah. not everyone has time to go to a farmer's market or, you know, buy the eggs that cost twice as much. They might have other stressors in their life. They might be working a couple of jobs and, um, you know, the industrial food system is what is feeding the world right now for Mm. the most part, especially in the West. And so, um, you know, 
there are better and worse choices for everyone. We're not going to all, you know, switch to a regenerative meat tomorrow. And so let people live their healthiest lives while we still can push for a better food system at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, Diane, I've heard you speak before about that you didn't, um, uh, that you had some sort of learning difficulties when you were growing up. And you also mentioned earlier on that your, you know, food choices weren't necessarily ideal. And what I have increasingly seen is just the number of children that are now diagnosed with learning difficulties in in schools. And and this will this might just be an opinion piece from you, or or you might have some research to to support it. But what do you think, if any, the relationship is between what we're feeding kids and what we're seeing in schools? Yeah, well, I mean, we do know that worldwide, one in two kids has a micronutrient deficiency, at least one. Um, and there are certain micronutrients that are critical for cognitive development. Um, and, um, they largely come from animal source foods. Uh, so DHA, as you know, uh, B12, which can cause permanent brain damage. And that is only found in animal source foods like meat, um, and iron, which is required for, um, brain development too, and physical development. Um, and, yeah, when I was growing up, the well, I ate okay. Like it wasn't the worst worst diet in the world. It wasn't what I feed my kids today, but um but I was also I was everything went straight through me because I wasn't absorbing anything. So I was um just eating all the time and like was chronically underweight all the time. Um and like words would spin on pages. I actually didn't even make it through high school reading a book cover to cover. Um, and it's funny because Rob Wolf, who's my co-author, um, also had similar issues and similar reading problems when, I mean, words would just spin on pages for him as well. Um, so it really wasn't until I had my diet under control that, you know, I was actually able to take a class like biochemistry. I just couldn't before. And And that's why I ended up being an artist. Um, because I would, make a painting of what I thought the book was about. And I got just really good at faking it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, but, you know, I, it's it's interesting because even with my kids now, they know that they feel so much better when they have a solid breakfast with eggs and, um, you know, cheese and some kind of, you know, fatty um, food on the side um, that just cereal, they would they would like get exhausted and be starving like an hour later if that's all they had before they went to school. Um, so, I, you know, in, in a lot of the schools here in the U.S., there actually is a free breakfast program, too. But unfortunately, the types of foods that they're serving for breakfast are French toast, pancakes, um, just really high sugar, um, really low nutritional value foods. And it's hard to push it's we've got similar sort of programs that run here in select schools in New Zealand and it's hard to push back against the fact that actually these kids are just getting calories and that you know because that's the I guess that's the um um that's the thing that they wouldn't have been getting even that had they not been fed foods but then of course the quality of the foods are um problematic a lot of the time too mm-hmm. yeah uh Diana you've recently been at COP27 mm-hmm and um, as I understand it, that, you know, I, well, I feel like people hear things about um, sort of climate change and, and groups getting together to try and, like, you know, solve the 
the problem that is um, that we're now increasingly aware of. But there are just, I don't, from what I understand, just hidden agendas, or you know, there's there's not really there's a disconnect between what they're telling people they're doing, but what's actually going on. I don't know. So can you sort of like talk to us about what you found at COP27? Tell us about your experience. Yeah, um, I actually the 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 access I got to COP twenty seven by the way is from Beef and Lamb New Zealand. Uh, they actually are the ones that got me the badge, the security clearance to get in. Um, so I wasn't even sure I was going to go, and then they came through with that. So hot tip to them. Um, I was really disappointed with what I saw at COP twenty seven. Um, what I saw was. Uh, a lot of people who have no actual experience working with people um, as dietitians talking about what foods we need to eat to be healthy, which um, must include eliminating animal foods like meat. And by the way, we know that they're driving climate change. I mean, it was so dramatic. It was so um, nonsensical. Um, it was really just a race to whoever had the nonprofit with the most funding to get the biggest voices there to talk about it. So there were a lot of big foundations. Um, and there were also a lot of sponsors from um, the alternate meat world that were the ones behind these talks. Uh, so I do believe that there are some people that are saying this, that, um, you know, that, that we need to eliminate meat for health and climate that believe that they, they, I actually do think that they think they're saving the world or I want to believe the mo the majority, you know, because I do believe that humans are generally good people. Um, but, uh, but I see the funding behind it. I know, I mean, the, the margins that can be made, the profits that can be made in these alternative proteins are so huge. The investment that I see going into these alternative proteins by the millions and millions and millions of dollars, everyone's trying to find out like which one's it going to be, you know? Um, and they can't win on health. They can't win on human health. They can't win on ecosystem functions, on food sovereignty, on, you know, increasing the livelihood of people who live in rural communities. There's so many benefits to raising livestock. Um, so they've, they've gotten everyone overly focused on this idea that, you know, it's just the number of, um, you know, that CO2 number, we must, we must reduce, you know, at any cost and humans must do their part. And there's such little talk about, you know, maybe we should be consuming less junk. Maybe we should be, um, riding bicycles more. There's such little talk about reducing our fos fossil fuel emissions and so much, talk about how we all need to eat less meat when there's just, first of all, not very good evidence to show that it would do anything that would make any difference at all, especially when we're having all these people fly to Egypt um, from all over on these private jets, right? Um, uh, in these designer suits, you know, talking about all of this stuff. Uh, but also what's being overlooked are the worldwide micronutrient deficiencies and how animal source foods is the best solution to them. Um, B12, iron, uh, vitamin A, vitamin D. So folate would be the only top one that is um, also found in, in animal foods in good amounts, but it's, I mean, in plant foods, um, but it's also found in animal foods too. Um, and so it was just disappointing to me. I, I didn't see 
much room for nuance at all um, or for protecting the livelihoods of um, small-scale farmers who in most parts of the world rely on livestock as their primary income. It means 12% of the world's population rely on livestock as their primary income. It just seemed very elitist and tone deaf to me. Yeah. And do groups like, or meetings like COP27, do they actually affect any change at all? Like, will there be, you know, how worried should we be that these groups, these millionaires are meeting and talking like this in terms of the outcomes from a sort of, I don't know, from a political? Well, I mean, in New Zealand, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the most radical policy yet. The plant, the, the plant a tree, get rid of pasture land. Yeah. So, so taxing farmers for um, their methane emissions. Um, but also taking very productive agricultural land out of production to plant monocrop trees to offset the carbon emissions from grass-fed beef. Um, like both of those things are radical and ridiculous policies that shouldn't be happening. In fact, I have a um, a New Zealand farmer uh, coming on the podcast on my podcast soon to talk about that. Um, Storm. It is. Yeah, Storm. Yeah, 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 yeah. She told me. How can you forget a name like that? <laughs> I know. It's amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, but I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing a lot happening in Wales, in Ireland, um, different types of policies also happening in Brazil. Um, and, of course, the Netherlands, there's crazy things happening there, too. Uh, and the problem is when we reduce livestock, it's not going to reduce the demand. So it just yeah. means there's going to be farmers out of work and the the business is going to go to another country like Brazil or Australia or Argentina or something like that. It's not going to mean that people are eating less meat or or having less butter. Yeah, yeah. it's It seems so absolutely crazy crazy to me that that these things are even being talked about or you know considered um particularly in a country like New Zealand like this is where you know we get all of our export you know we've got we make so much of our GDP comes from exporting these products and they're just completely putting the kibosh on it yeah and and ironically New Zealand is also one of the best producers I've seen. Like, you know, when, when I, when I go around the world and I look at all the different production, um, systems, New Zealand has the perfect climate for raising meat and you guys do it so well. Um, and you know, I've done a lot of work there. I've been there a couple of times now. Um, just really, really impressed, um, with many things about New Zealand, but in particular your beef industry. And so to make these rules and to, to, to torture your own farmers. I mean, there are, if you want to try to reduce emissions, there are better ways to do it by using incentives instead of punishment. Um, and uh, it's really more in the dairy category that I could see um, improvements being made. But in pasture-based um, systems, there's really not a whole lot that can be done. It's not like you can feed seaweed pellets to and measure that output um, as well as you could in a confined dairy situation. Diana, there are, as you talked about, and I mean, you just have to go to the supermarket to see this just emergence of these meat alternatives that are coming up. And not only are they insanely expensive, 
if you compare them to actually like buying meat. But there's just a host of other ingredients and 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 things from them, and the the protein source that's in them is um, you know one of about three or four different ones that I've sort of seen. And I do think that the companies producing them, a lot of them are small sort of boutique scale companies who, who, as you say, really do believe that they're, they're, you know, they're providing a healthful alternative to meat. Um, can you talk us through why they're not a great alternative to meat? Sure. Um, well, first of all, they like to claim that they're um, a more ethical solution. And I haven't seen any of the major alternate meat companies using even organic inputs, right? So there's a lot of heavy spraying of um, pesticides that, you know, wipe out insect populations. We've we've got, you know, all this toxic runoff. I mean, they're just contributing to that. Uh, and, and plus, just to even make a field to grow a monocrop, you have to uh, annihilate an entire ecosystem of whatever was living there before. Um, so there's lots of death that happens even in the growing of wheat or soy or pea protein or whatever. Um, and there also happens to be a ton of extra waste that happens from this uh, process. So for every pound of plant-based protein, there are four pounds of waste that come from that, that can either sit in a pile and emit methane, or you can feed it to an animal like a cow and turn it into meat. And so that's just like, ironically, you know, a lot of what, um, what is going into, uh, feed supplements when animals are being given, um, you know, a feedlot or, or, or some kind of situation where they're not getting just grass it's the leftover from the plant-based protein industry because it has to go somewhere, right? And so so ethically, I would argue there is no no death situation. You might as well, you know, try to buy the best meat you can afford that, you know, get, try to get to know your farmer, that kind of stuff. Environmentally, I mean, I also, I just pointed out too that, you know, they really can't, um, you know, compared to an animal grazing on grass that is like sequestering carbon, providing habitat for wildlife, increasing the water hold, holding capacity of the soil, all kinds of stuff I talk about in my book, in my film, Sacred Cow, um, monocropping of pea or wheat or soy or whatever the input is for these fake things is not going to be as good. Um, and it's going to actually be an extractive process that's damaging to the environment. And then nutritionally, I mean, a lot of these companies have already been called out for lying about the protein content, but we even know that even if the number of protein looks equivalent to meat, it's not as bioavailable to humans as animal source meat, just because we can't break it down in the same way. Um, the micronutrients, the vitamins and minerals that are in these are, um, largely not naturally occurring. So they're fortified. Um, they're, you know, fake synthetic um, nutrients that are added in, which we also know don't get absorbed in the same way that eating food in its real form like meat does. And yeah, it's just, a, it's an ultra processed piece of garbage is what it is. And it's twice as expensive in most cases totally. as real meat. Yeah. And I see the the movement sort of, of of eating these types of foods and the message to eat less meat, which we are constantly told like all of the time, you need to eat less meat and is is not necessarily picked up by people who might actually benefit from eating less meat. Like, you know, potentially the people who do have ultra processed food diets and lots of junk food and, and maybe meat in their diet 
might not necessarily be great because it's because they don't have a lot of actual just nutritional um, uh, uh, qualities that would make it a healthy diet. But it's the people who I see in my clinic and you must see in your clinic as well who already don't eat enough protein and now they're trying to pull back their meat even further and they've got low iron and they're low in the B12 and, and things like that. Yes, exactly. And if we were to try to make that up in a real food form, so let's say beans and rice, um, so you can get 30 grams of protein from about 180 calories worth of steak or 750 calories worth of beans and rice. And you're still, so let's say you get 30 grams of protein, it's still not going to be as bioavailable. So you're still not going to absorb 30 grams of protein from that beans and rice where you would from the meat. And you're still not going to get the iron, the B12, all the other micronutrients that you can get from meat. Um, so yeah, you'll get some fiber, but you're going to get a lot of carbs, a lot of calories. Um, and most people, weight gain is not their goal. Um, but a great way to gain weight is to eat less meat and uh, try to get your protein from plant-based sources. Diana, how... How hopeful and optimistic are you that the messages in Sacred Cow and that your work around the globe and the other people that you're working with, like, is this going to affect change? Are we going to see a, a sort of a, a shifting of things over the next five years? What do you think? Well, we're seeing markets um, and, you know, the result of people just refusing to eat this stuff. So people don't want it, even though there's a lot of investment going into it. And so that's um, making me quite hopeful, actually. Um, you know, these companies, like I mentioned, are getting exposed for greenwashing, for lying about their protein content. Um, Beyond Meat was just uh, caught with all kinds of awful mold and listeria uh, in their factory here in the US. And so you know, that's gonna, they're doing really badly right now. I, I know that there's some lab meat that's, you know, cultured meat that's going to be coming out pretty soon. We'll see how that goes. We'll see what the consumer acceptance is. Everyone's very hopeful, but I also, you know, saw people, uh, investors being very hopeful about all these other alternative, uh, meat products too, and they just didn't pan out. So hopefully the meat industry will make some improvements and start talking about the benefits also that they have to ecosystem function to drive the conversation a little bit away from just talking about carbon to talk about water cycles, um, biogenic methane um, uh, cycles and how it shouldn't be looked at the same as fossil fuels, talking about how raising livestock actually strengthens rural communities um, and we need that right now really badly. Uh, we can't just all live in cities and have, you know, countryside just rewilded. You know, we, we actually need to be using uh, that land. And so I think there's a really big story to tell with um, meat. Um, I think there are some improvements that need to happen in the meat industry uh, continually with animal welfare issues, with environmental issues. But I think it can be done. Um, I think we need more health influencers out there who feel confident enough to, you know, come out and proudly say that they eat meat and, and talk about it. Uh, so 
you know, I, I help people all the time trying to uh, get that message out there. Yeah, yeah. And you do such a fabulous job. And I have heard of a number of health influencers. In fact, one here in New Zealand as well, Sarah Tanner. She, um, I spoke to her on my podcast and she's long been sort of a vegan health influencer working with companies. And she's recently um, made the shift to a sort of a real food meat-inclusive diet for her health, actually, which for someone to build their uh, influence, if you like, in the vegan area to then come out, I think it's really quite courageous, actually. Um, and yeah, kudos to the people that you will also um, know about that are doing that too, right? Yeah, to, to, I know a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Diana, finally, you know, if someone's listening to this and they're like, what can I actually do to help help in this space, you know, and they might have read your book or, or seen the movie or, um, and obviously they might be sharing the word with, with people around them, but what can people do? Uh, well, I have a nonprofit called the Global Food Justice Alliance that helps support the social media messaging and the speaking that I do. Um, we're also starting to get meat to people who need it, um, you know, food pantries around the world. Um, are chronically low in protein, often because they don't have the refrigeration space for something perishable. Um, but I also know, um, you know, so we're starting we're starting to do some work in that area as well with uh, like meat sticks for kids' backpacks. Uh, but I know there's an organization in New Zealand called Meet the Need, and um, Silver Fern Farms works with them. And so I would encourage people to check that out and get involved with that because people who are food insecure. The biggest thing they need is nutrients, not just calories. And um, and so getting nutritious food like meat into um, food pantries is really critical. Yeah, that's awesome, Diana. Um, and um, for those people who might not know where they can find you, just tell us where we can find you. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, globalfoodjustice.org and at globalfoodjustice on Instagram. Uh, my main feed is Sustainable Dish, uh, so they can find me on Instagram there. Um, I try to avoid Twitter, so don't don't engage with me on Twitter because it, it just ends up uh, uh, just doing, you know, a, a lot of back and forth with people that just want to argue, you know. Um, I, my blog is sustainabledish.com, um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn and uh, interacting more on LinkedIn. That is awesome, Diana. Thank you so much for your time this morning. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Alrighty, hopefully you enjoyed that conversation and as I said, you can find all of Diana's resources and links to her books over on sustainabledish.com and absolutely check her out on Instagram and Facebook, a really a wealth of information there as well. Alright team, you have a great week. The best way to find me in between now and next week is to jump on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition head over to Instagram or Twitter at Mickey Willardin or jump on my website mickeywillardin.com and book a consultation with me. All right, team, have a great week. See you later.